0: Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at BuiltByscott by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Winston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning has gone completely virtual. We've taken both our level one and level two courses and loaded them onto an online platform so that you can digest the power of this amazing operating system from the comfort of your home. We combine this recorded video experience with live Zoom labs to bring all the principles and practices of reconditioning to life through applied case study. In turn, you walk away with how to best use this language of common practice to bring the worlds of therapy and performance together in one powerful approach that creates lasting change in your client's performance. This fall, ReconditioningHQ.com is launching a complete experience package that brings all of the video teachings together with a powerful mentorship program and a weekly community touchpoint so you can grow as the reconditioning revolution grows. We are truly excited about the possibilities. We believe that success in any venture begins with the right mindset. We know that the statistics for burnout in human performance are significant and that many of our colleagues face questions every day about personal fulfillment and living their best life. This is why we've started a landmark program for human performance professionals called empower you. This program is all about crafting your best life, living purposefully and enjoying the fruits of your impassioned labor. We start our next quarter in September and we'd love to have you along for the ride for more information about reconditioning courses or our amazing Emp- Power You program, head over to reconditioninghq.com and use the coupon code LYM50 for $50 Canadian off the program of your choice. Leave Your Mark believes in our sponsor, Matrix Fitness, to bring the best of human performance equipment and support to our listeners. Matrix is one of the leading-edge manufacturers of fitness products on the planet today and one of the fastest growing. Their equipment and programs are used by performance practitioners of all levels throughout the world today. Matrix Fitness engineers have put together their free home workout app and youth at-home workout programs. This is an example of how Matrix Fitness serves the fitness community all over the world and how building strong communities is their goal. You can access Matrix Fitness applications and support at MatrixTotalSolutionsSupport.com. Their purpose is to help you thrive. What's in your ZNA? That is a question our sponsor Zenkai Sports has for you. Are you interested in increasing your performance output, helping the environment, and doing less laundry? If you answered yes to any of those questions, please go to ZenkaiSports.com and check out the latest innovation in performance apparel. Zenkai uses cutting-edge technology that repels sweat and other liquids. Zenkai Apparel lets the sweat stay on your skin, keeping your cooler for longer, and repelling odor-causing bacteria. This means Zenkai apparel can be worn 10, 15, 20 times with no washing required. I would highly recommend trying this amazing product, and I've teamed up with them so you can get 20% off your entire order. Just head over to Zenkaisports.com and use the discount code LYM20. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Kevin Tyler. Kevin is currently the president of Alta's, a progressive and innovative athletics training center based in Phoenix, Arizona. A former competitive track and bobsleigh athlete, Kevin pursued coaching and athletics while engaging in higher education and criminology. Over the course of his ex- extensive careers he served as head of track and field for bc athletics as sports marketing manager and running an olympic sport for nike canada as the director of the canadian athletics coaching center as the head of coaching and development uk athletics and as a sprints and hurdles coach at the university of oklahoma before taking on a leadership role at altus altus is trying to be a part of the change movement going on in athletics and sports performance coach development altus has embraced the notions of collaboration transparency and value for from its inception and they try to live by this every day kevin is deeply committed to leading altus in their goal of being a trusted resource for coach education and development globally above all the professional experience kevin has been married to his wife lara for 27 years and he is a father of two children i'm honored to have him on the show today welcome kevin
1: Thanks, Scott. Uh, Appreciate you having me on. It's an honor.
0: Yeah, it was uh, actually cool to read your email and stuff. I really loved the little uh, jab you had for yourself of being an eight-year-old sprinter uh, and. Kicking everybody's ass, uh, and then believing you were going to the Olympics, so to speak. So, tell me about you. Tell, tell me about discovering being quick. How did that come about for you? Was it just chasing kids or running away from things? <laughs> yeah, I,
1: you know, I think well, we're both of the same kind of generation. So, you know, we had you know an intricate network of trails behind our house where I grew up, just outside of Vancouver. And you know, it's all subdivision now, but there were tons of trails in there. And I, my earliest memories are of running with my friends like in those back trails probably five six seven years old you know running as fast as we could um, experimenting with different arm techniques and just being silly (laughs) and uh, I don't recall being fast at that period because you know my friends were older they were a year or two older than me and so you know always running with older boys you know you're always trying to catch up but when I was in the third grade I went out for the track team which at, at our elementary school which um, officially kind of started at fourth grade. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, okay, I'm, I want to try this. And, you know, he had those roundabout driveways in the, in the schools where the parents <laughs> drop the kids off. And uh, <clears throat> we had to run one lap of that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, you have to run one lap of that. And I finished fourth, and they were picking a relay team, and all the boys that had beaten me were a year older than me. And they basically told me that, yeah, we would select you, but you're too young, so you can't go. And I remember even at that point, like that really pissed me off. And um, so, you know, I went back the next year, made the team, went to the local meet, you know, against, you know, whatever the five local schools. And I won the 100, the 200 and the 400. And, now you know, before you have a chance to get too cocky, you go to the district meet, which is then you know, like, all of Delta, you know, North Delta, South Delta, Ladner. And uh, I got my ass kicked. I finished <laughs> seventh in every race because I went to straight finals. And uh, the only kid I beat was the kid from our district in every race. So <laughs> and I remember, like, I was very emotional. Um, I remember balling my eyes out, you know, I was probably eight years old. And my dad saying to me, because my dad was big, he was into athletics. Like, he was mm-hmm. at the British Empire Games, when Bannister and Landy both went under four minutes. Um, he actually passed away in 1994, and he was at the Commonwealth Games in Victoria when he kind of had the first incident, which led him going to the hospital. So he was a huge supporter um, through my career that way, and he just said, okay, that's it. We're going to join a club. Mm-hmm. And I did that, and I got my ass kicked again. <laughs> that was in the fourth grade, and I remember thinking, man, this isn't easy. And uh, I was fortunate the next year in grade five, I ended up winning the Provincial championships, so grade five, six division. I won the hundred, and you know, you go to those meets, and it's like, you know, what offices was like, right? I mean, there's like 250 kids in the race, and it was like the biggest moment ever. And being Canadian, I think that time we went to Mr. Mike's steakhouse for steak afterwards, and uh, it was just like it a big gold medal, and that was it. From that point, I was like, all right, I'm hooked. <laughs> and uh, yeah, but. I think what was really important there, especially as at least my coaching career, is that, you know, the two things that I learned having been involved in the sport from some early age is that, you know, what's the best sport? The best sport, typically if you're young, is what you're good at. Mm. And if kids have opportunities to try a lot of sports and find what they're good at, you know, they'll get turned on and they'll get excited by it. And, you know, you also see, importantly, like um, how important maturation plays, you know, and we know like ordinal birth dates and. You know things like that, and the factors that they play, and you've seen that in hockey in Canada. Um, you, you know uh, there's big fluctuations year on year, and so you start to understand that. Hey, especially when working with young people, it's really important that you create a fun, positive environment. You know, with with development, development, developmentally appropriate activity, and then um, you know just allow them to go through that cycle of growth, and then you know it'll look after itself if they've got some talent and they've got a passion for it. You know they'll. they'll 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 excel at some point Mm -hmm. the other thing was is just perseverance because at that point I try to think back like from that you know elementary school years I mean the only person that came through my cohort with me was Simon Hogerworth and me and him when we got to be seniors were pretty much the only two from our, our age group that had stuck it out and Simon ended up you know he won a bronze medal world indoors in the 800 and he was part of a really good training group in Vancouver with Doug Clement and uh, he had the Canadian record and he ran about 145 in the 800, but he had the Canadian record for quite a while.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so again, that just kind of points out, like, it's really important that if you enjoy it, you know, you stick with it, you mm-hmm. know, there are definitely better people than me. Um, I just stuck with it. And then, like I said, it was, you know, I almost had accidental success because of the bo- opportunity that Bobsled presented.
0: Mm-hmm. how how important was your uh, dad and was there anybody like a teacher or a coach back in those days that sort of um, lit the fire because you know I, I found it curious you and I I didn't actually realize but you and I are born the same year and we're, we're the same age pretty much um, and you know I recall growing up that You know there was there was an athletics in the background at at all schools but it really wasn't you know we were influenced highly by Bobby Orr and you know all the the hockey that was going on in Canada and the Canada Cups and playing Russia or the CFL or whatever and I'm just kind of curious what was the other than discovering it was there somebody who sort of pushed you over and kind of pushed you into and kept you going rather than you being distracted by the common sort of distractions of sport in Canada at the time?
1: Yeah I I think you know, obviously role models and and parents and mentors play a big role, but I think it's more about opportunity. Like I kind of discovered kind of my own that I was fast and I was, I remember being distinctly interested in it Mm -hmm. from a very young age, kind of compare that to my dad was a big baseball fan as well. And so I think when I was in third grade, he took me out for baseball and it was, you know, grade, the league was grade three to grade five and my birthday's at the end of September. So, you know, and I was in grade three. And so it was like, there were kids on that team that were two and a half years older than me. Mm-hmm. And I remember distinctly not enjoying it because, you know, these guys were throwing the ball. It just felt like it was coming at hundred miles an hour. And, you know, uh, I went back to years. I, then I didn't play. And I went back two years later and then realized, you know, maturationally like, okay, I can do this now. But even as early as grade five, I had a choice to make, you know, cause baseball and track, interfered with one another hmm. and I just you know decided that my wouldn't help my dad was kind of like yeah I'm going to stick with track um, hmm. rather than go over and play try and play baseball but I think it was just more about opportunity like I definitely had there were definitely teachers um, our vice principal at our elementary school was also um, I think the vice president of our track club and he was super encouraging you know like he'd you know, I think Derek probably tells the story of um, Ken Taylor and Burnaby Central and you know how important he was, you know, his participation in the sport and him going on to being a coach. Well, you know, Coach McTavish was the kind of same with me. Like, you know, he'd just make sure you were at practice, you know, he'd give you that extra bit of encouragement, you know, he'd see it at club practice. You know, I remember once, you know, me and another guy, we were always in trouble. We, like in elementary school, like me and another guy they were always in trouble. We were on the roof of the school or something. And he caught us and, you know, like I know I was getting leniency because of my sport background. Right. You know, I think we had to write something on the board 500 times, but you know, it was, it's just kind of that, you know, the encouragement and the support and being there and providing the rides and mm-hmm. helping you through the periods where, you know, you're not winning, you know, because um, it is very cyclical based on your growth and, um, and, and also the amount of training ball you're doing. I mean, I remember a period, you know, there were kids in the fourth and fifth grade, in Richmond, running from the track to the airport, which was a six-mile run, mm-hmm. you know, and those kids were outstanding. They were running outstanding times at that age, and then they were burnt out two years later. They just had enough of it doing six-mile runs on the on the concrete at, right. you know, 10 years of age. So, yeah. Nope.
0: How have you brokered that influence element as a father? I'm curious because, you know, I, having moved up, I moved from the city up to Mont-Tremblant a few years ago, five years ago, and I watch kids around me. And, there, you know, there's obviously a ski element and there's mountain biking and all these different things. And, you know, I find the, the kids that have parents that have certain – sort of affinities like they love mountain biking or love skiing the kids sort of roll into that and then there's a bit of a a progression in, in that space so I'm curious whether where you lie now as a father as a coach as an experienced over the years whether you think there's a real genetic pursuit and a sort of an affinity pursuit or whether our influences are bigger drivers into what we end up having success in in sport or other things
1: yeah, I, I think personality has a lot to do with it. My wife was a—we met on the track team my senior year at university, and uh, um, she actually was a decent 800 meter runner, like 206. Had some success in Canada, and then, you know, went on to do triathlon and was running mid 33, you know, 10ks and and pretty, you know, pretty competitive. Competed competed at the World Championships, was in the top six, of the elite division in Canada. Competed in a whole number of World Cups. I think because we both did it so intently. We didn't bring that to our kids, but I think that's more our personality. You know, mm-hmm. we kind of let our kids feel out what they want to do and um, supported them where we could and definitely took them to all kinds of practices and, um, you know, encouraged them in that way. But um, just kind of let them kind of discover what they thought, you know, they enjoyed and where they wanted to participate. Um, you know, I, I've seen the opposite, right? You know, when I was at Oklahoma, I just, fortunate enough to have you know, recruited some really good kids there in the two years that I was there and, uh, you know, definitely saw the opposite, right. You know, parents that you know, drove the kids hard from a very young age and very focused and, mm-hmm. and, you know, they had talent and they did well. And, um, so there's different approaches to it. I, I guess, you know, the, we had a saying in Britain when I was working there, and I think it's really important to have a philosophy as an organization. And, you know, we used to say, you know, the whole coach development team and Charles Ann Colman, who was the head coach at the time, was very supportive of this, which was, you know, it's about senior success. And so, you know, I kind of carried that into my private life with my children, which is like, look, I want you to have as broad and as deep of the experiences as you can so that you grow into being a, you know, quality, mature individual as an adult, you know, does good things for the world. So, um, and that's kind of the approach that we've taken. And similarly in athletics, that's the approach that, you know, that we'd take as well, which is, you know, give the athletes what they need now based on their emotional and physical development and, you know, give them the opportunity to flourish as adults when they have the best possibility for success. And there's people that will argue the opposite of that. I mean, there's people that will argue, you know, hey, they got to go to the world youth championships. That was the highlight of their career um you know mm. why should you take that away from them you know that gave them a strong um sense of you know self worth
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: but i think from a as an organization or a federation or you know someone that's progressive in the sport is that you should be trying to create you know opportunities for people to do the best they can with the tools that they
0: have right. at the people in their life right how does um Tell me about criminology. What are you attracted to in criminology? Is this something that you end up doing because you want to be in you want to do higher education while you while you're pursuing track and athletics, or is this something that you actually had a spirit spirit of interest in, and, and why? Uh, yeah, so I guess
1: if I go back to when I was bobsledding, so I did a year in university and then I kind of pr- took an opportunity to pursue track, which took me to Toronto, which then led to this after a couple of years, like the bobsled opportunity. And I think we went to the Olympics in 88 and all of the drivers at the time. So Dave Lutie, Greg Hayden, Chris Laurie, who went on to have quite a bit of success. And I think he was fourth at the Olympics in 92. Um, they all had uh, finished university or had graduate degrees and mm-hmm. I hear we were 23, 24 years old and I was very acutely aware that I needed to get back into school. And, you know, I thought look, I've experienced this. This was great. It's time to get back into school. So kind of the last year that I was bobsledding, I was going to school in the summer as well and it was just a completely different experience at 23 than it was at 18. Um, you know, I, I started taking some courses that I got interested in. I happened to take a criminology course and I really enjoyed it and I did well in it. And it's the same as going back to the running, right? There was some success there and where there was some success, you know, often that that's encouraging and it, it prompts you to do more. Um, but I, I met, a uh, much along the line of our earlier discussion um Ray Carrado, Dr. Corrado was um, a well-renowned um, professor of uh, both youth violence youth crime and terrorism mm-hmm. and I took two or three of his upper level courses and was really turned on by it you know just the level of like you know the terrorism course was the first one I took and you know just the, the level of you know thinking in a social political economic level you know Hmm. um, looking at all the variables and getting past the rhetoric of good and bad and dualisms and you know just really starting to look at that I remember having a particular interest in Northern Ireland which was actually kind of funny because when I was working in Britain I purposely spent a lot of time over there because of that you know partly because of that Hmm. Um, but yeah he was just really encouraging now he'd been a hockey player he grew up in trail BC played at a very good level you know he went to Notre Dame um, played hockey in college, and then I think he went on to University of Michigan Law School for a year, didn't like it, ended up going to Northwestern and did his PhD there, you know, um, and he was just really encouraging. You know, I was an athlete on the track team. I was getting good grades, and he was just like, you know, hey, this I think this is something you should pursue, and my original intent was to go to law school. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. that was from a young age. I wanted to be a lawyer, mm-hmm. um, so I was working hard to keep my GPA in that range, and I wrote the LSAT, and it came to the point where was considering going to law school and and he took me aside and kind of said, Hey, I think, you know, I'd like you to, we we got a bit of work that needs to be done around here. Um, He encouraged me to do an honors thesis on uh, the reporting of um, violent youth crime in Canada in five or six major newspapers. Hmm. which took me a year and then, um, and then encouraged me to go do a master's degree at the university of Toronto, which, which I did. And that was kind of purposeful. It was a one-year program. It was compressed the point was to turn around and come back and do my PhD at SFU, which I did um, the first two years of uh, completed all my coursework. We were were awarded a couple of big research grants, Um, Hmm. but yeah, again, it just goes back to the whole mentorship component and the encouragement and someone taking an interest in you. And then that combines with some of your interests. And I
0: don't
1: know, I've always had an interest in young people and helping young people. And so um, definitely got to see the other side of it from, you know, from that perspective,
0: how, how is um, I, I would imagine studying that and understanding in some sense, the psychology, the elements that contribute to et cetera. How has that affected your your coaching? You know, like what yeah. what do you bring to, to coaching that maybe somebody else doesn't because of that educational background?
1: Yeah, That's a good question, because um, between. My master's degree and PhD, I took a year off. My wife was doing teacher's college, so we're kind of taking turns supporting each other. Uh, I got a I got a great opportunity to work in this um, outreach program that was just starting. It was um, basically it had been funded by the provincial government. My boss was just finishing up his PhD at the University of Chicago, and he had some really strong thoughts about youth development and how youth should be treated in the correctional system. And so basically the program was a program to provide disadvantaged youth with all kinds of opportunities they wouldn't normally be given Mm -hmm. um, exposure to and providing them some structure through both a a very tolerant education program that was highly flexible and not just only youth workers, recreational workers, but family workers as well. And the point was to kind of have an integrated approach where you address the family and the youth and education and movement and keep them busy and try and get them switched on to something much like, you know, we're talking about athletics. And so I was the first person they hired outside of like the the two leadership positions. And he almost didn't hire me because of my criminology background, because they were more, um, you know, social workers, you know, they kind of criminology, it's kind of got a label of being, especially in the United States, which criminal justice, Mm -hmm. um, you know, hard line, you know, this Mm -hmm. is the law, black and white, Mm -hmm. black letter law. Um, So, but I had a good interview and he hired me. And so basically my first task was I took six boys out of uh, Willingdon lockup and uh, the facility wasn't open. The program wasn't ready, but dollars were flowing from the government and they gave me money, a credit card. And they said, take this van, go to Kelowna, Penticton and the interior of British Columbia and hang out with these boys. And wow. you know, just here's a list of potential things that you could do. So right away, I was thrown into the fire. Um, we got up there, and we got to the dorms. Uh, one kid broke his window and ran away, like right wow. off the bat. <laughs> There's no way I could supervise six kids, right? <laughs> Eventually, he came back. Everything worked out. I mean, it was um, it was a it was a positive experience. But I'll go back to your question. The one thing that he said to me. And and he used to say to all of us all the time, and this really stuck with me, and it's sometimes the simplest things that stick with you, and he said, everyone's doing the best they can at any particular moment in time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And if their best isn't good enough at that period of time, then there's a whole number of variables around it that are incredibly deep and incredibly intricate. And mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> I just remember that period was, <clears throat> it was shocking. Like, we would do <clears throat> some great work, and um, there was one boy came into school one day, and they pulled his dad off the Batella Bridge the night before. And the Batella Bridge in Westminster is like, that's a big bridge. You jump off that, you're gone. And they lived in a community under that bridge that I didn't even know existed, just hmm. on the north end of Surrey. And it was um, it's called Bridgetown. Basically, it's the place where if kids steal cars. They take them there, and they burn them. And went into his house, and they would literally, like, if how would you almost imagine like people that were working on the railway 100, 125 years ago, 150 years ago, and the type of housing they would have, you know, Mm. just slap board against some frame, uh, no central heating, Um, they had water, uh, and it it was like almost like a big steel drum in the middle of the living room burning Mm. whatever to create some heat in the house. Another boy, uh, you know, um, doing really well, same thing you know, comes in one morning, his parents are on the front page of the Vancouver province. they have been busted leading up a major child pornography ring.
0: Mm.
1: Now, if you're 15 years old and you're trying to find yourself and you're trying to relate to your peers, and, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, the nicknames going around about that kid were, were not positive yeah. and, you know, incredibly difficult. And then at the same time, <clears throat> I worked with a, a young indigenous boy, who gave me a lot of trouble. I think we were, I really liked him, but you know, same types of issues. We were coming back from uh, the beach one day and we were driving down the freeway and somehow he'd gotten a cigarette and don't ask me how, cause it, now it seems crazy how he would have that in the van. And he basically threw it on my lap while I was driving down the freeway or they would, <laughs> they, or you'd be driving the van and they would be throwing glass bottles out on, you know, out on the freeway or out on the highway um, on the trans Canada with cars following us. You know, I remember once I was looking in the rearview mirror and these kids are in the back and they're ripping the interior of this brand new, like Nissan quest, they're ripping the interior out of it. Right. About five years later, that boy calls me up and says, Hey, um, I've got a judo tournament. Um, I'd like you to come and watch. And I went and watched the tournament. He won his weight class. And, you know, he, he came up to, he took me outside afterwards and he said, you know, I want to apologize, you know, like, you know, what I did was wrong. And mm. to know, you know, that, that, like that really stuck with him, right. Like it means something. And to see that, you know, those opportunities in a small way contributed to turning his life around mm. um, was really positive, but it's um, I, I've got the most, utmost respect for people that work in that, in that field. Cause it is mm. emotionally extremely draining, mm. you know, and you need, um, you need to be incredibly patient, and if you're an athlete, especially a power-based athlete that you know is you know used to running on adrenaline, um, that's not always the best characteristic to bring into that environment. And, and I had one coworker who, at the time, was in his 40s, but he was a practicing Buddhist, and he, he was incredible. Like I just watched him with these kids; like they just trusted him, you know, because he 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 never presented a threat, but mm. he was firm. Um, he was understanding. And it was hard to rock them. Um, And and that's kind of the personality you kind of need in that environment because any change that's going to occur is going to occur over a long period of time. So when you ask me what I brought from that into coaching and coaching sprinters, um, you know, lots. Now, do I get it right all the time? No. But you know, I, I can definitely reflect and, um, you know, that sticks with me. Like I said, I think everyone's trying to do the best they can at any one, any point in time. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if you start from that position as opposed to, you know, where a lot of perspectives start, you know, kind of Hobbesian, like everyone's basically motivated by Mm self-interest, um, and they're going to do whatever it takes, you know, to advance themselves. You know, those are two very different starting positions and, uh, but they, but they're, it's important because philosophy will drive policy, and you know some policies are incredibly destructive, and we see that down here in the United States. I mean, it's basically it's become an industry. You know, incarceration, mm-hmm. the criminal justice system's an industry here, and people are making a lot of money off of the suffering of other people.
0: Yeah, it's disturbing uh, how much that's going on. I watched that documentary, uh, Thirteen, uh, a little while ago, and that was quite. Uh, Quite enlightening. I didn't really realize how much of a um, an actual industry crim- the criminal system was <laughs> in the United States, but that's a big topic. Maybe we'll float flo- float into it a little bit a little bit later. <laughs> but um, before I do that, I'm I'm just curious. What was the light switch for you to be to go into coaching? Because you're an athlete, obviously you're finishing your bobsleigh career, and and what what says to you? I can coach versus I'm gonna. Because I know you mentioned you you were thinking about the professor side of things or the teaching side of things so what turns that for you yeah so i was already teaching at the university so
1: like you know as a phd candidate you're you basically mm-hmm. given courses um i enjoyed that part of it for some reason i just i, I kind of knew like i didn't see myself being a researcher i'm restless and that takes a lot of patience you know like spending thousand hours in front of a microfiche, you know, collecting data, only discover the third of your data is corrupted and you got to go back for another three months and fix it. Um, you know, I could do it because I could prove it to myself out of interest that I could actually do it. Yeah. Um, but as a lifestyle, is that what I wanted to do? No. Uh, I always saw myself teaching at college because I enjoyed the teaching component and then I enjoyed the interaction. Um, but I think, you know, what really the short answer to that is I had a really good soccer coach for about five years when I was in high school and his kids were coming of age and they were in high school and he asked me to come out and help them. I'd finished all my coursework and so I had a little bit of time in my schedule and so I started doing that. And then what happened was, you know, of course, what happens is, you know, he started to create a half decent program. I got two young boys that just fell into the program that I saw at a high school meet and one of them to run really well that year. He was probably five foot two you know, in the ninth grade, but he was really quick and he ran really fast. And, um, that was kind of like, it was exciting, you know, like I really enjoyed that part of it, helping these young people. And, you know, I definitely had some strong beliefs about, you know, how you should train as a sprinter. And that was at that stage was largely influenced by Charlie Francis. And most people didn't practice like that at the time. And we're talking, you know, night mid 1990s still. And, um, you know, I just, I just felt like those principles would work anywhere and um, started to apply them and started to have some success. And I think Laurier Primo, who's the head coach at university of British Columbia now was really my first senior athlete that kind of came on board. He was looking for a coach, you know, so he helped, you know, he's a, he's a go getter. He's a really good recruiter, you know, strong coach in his own right, understands all the event groups and he started putting a senior group together and he basically said to me, Hey, how would you like to work with all of us? And um, he ended up running broke 50 in the four hurdles for the first time, broke 47, you know, I think he ran 46, eight and 49, nine in the hurdles, um, which, you know, was incredibly, which was, was really good at that stage of his life. Um, and then it just grew. And then mm-hmm. literally like Derek sent Shane Nemi to us, you know, uh, January of 99. And, you know, I think he broke the Canadian record in the 400 within six months. And that was it. We were off and running. Like, you know, the group started to build. Shane ran 44 like two years after that, you know, and then I had a really good relationship with the Nike guys and that's what ended up leading to that opportunity. But it, you know, just, I mean, there there's, I mean, something right now, I mean, something like you really miss, which is this interaction with young people, you know, kind of, you know, having some understanding for, you know, with their emotions and their aspirations that, you know, haven't been an athlete and the excitement of that. And, uh, you, know, it's, um, it's and mm. you know, it's, it's invigorating and, you know, it's, it's much like criminal justice or any academic pursuit. It's, it's, it's really problem solving, right. Because our approach here and through all the mentors that I've had and, and the approach that we've taken here at Altus, which is to try and treat everyone as an individual. Mm. Um, so if you're doing that, um, you've got a bunch of problems in front of you, a bunch of puzzles in front of you that you're constantly trying to figure out.
0: You've been you've been influenced by, you know, a couple of um, really well-respected and sometimes call them controversial uh, people, figures in, you know, in Charlie Francis and Dan Path. What, what was it in both of those guys that you've learned from them? And also what do you recognize in them that made them successful or made them the, the, the people that they were, that, w- that differentiated them from the herd in some sense. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, both incredibly intelligent, mm-hmm. you know, very intelligent. Um, you know, if you listen to Dan's story, for instance, I mean, he's self-taught, mm-hmm. but he is a vociferous reader and uh, he absorbs material really well. And he has a really good way of making complex issues simple. Um, and he's always engaged in ongoing professional development. Part of that, you know, through his network of having a lot of mentees informally all the time and they're, you know, asking him questions and, you know, he's forced to try and figure, help figure those issues out. And then also he's got a lot of um, ex-athletes that, you know, that have excelled in a number of fields that have gone into you know, um, high level pursuits and, and he benefits from their knowledge. And so his network is enormous and, mm. um, he's intrigued by it. You know, like he, you know, he, if he ever stays at your house and, you know, like he's basically on his iPad all night, You know it's <laughs> like, he's sitting there reading, he's looking at, you know, social media feeds. He's looking at bits information. And he's always circling. If you're, if you're in his network, he's circling information, you know, cycling information through to his network all the time. Um, Charlie, the same thing. I and mean, Charlie, went to Stanford university. I mean, he, in political science, he was one of the, he had the quickest wit out of probably anyone I've ever met. Mm
0: -hmm. And,
1: you know, there was some sarcasm in it. You know, he had a kind of funny sense of humor, but if you operated at his level, he was incredibly humorous and, um, very, uh, much the same could take a lot of complex information and make it simple. And, um, Mm You know, the word I use for him, very pragmatic, very intelligent, very pragmatic. And, you know, we know where that all went. And I think the pragmatism to a degree was, you know, to him just common sense, hmm. you know, as he explained things. Um, so, you know, they share a lot of traits in that way. The other thing that's very big, on they're both huge into coach development. Hmm. And, you know, the one thing, you know, like Lauren Seagrave or, you know, um, any other coaches that have been influential in in my career, they've all had big networks of mentee coaches that they've taken on. Like they've always been really happy to share the information. I, I had really good fortune of both working with Dan very closely in the United Kingdom, but Lauren less known, like we brought Lauren over. I mean, I bet you Lauren spent 90 days a year every year in the United Kingdom, the four years we were over there and Hmm. I've seen him present probably, you know, 30 times now and fantastic presenter, you know, really loves education and has done a lot to help develop, you know, sprint coaches and help push sprint theory forward.
0: Hmm. Um,
1: So, yeah, I mean, those, you know, that it's, I don't think it's a surprise, you know, I think those are all qualities that, that, that lead to successful coaching. Uh, Very, very invested in their athletes, you know. You know, you know, everyone knows the story of Charlie basically, you know, selling his car to fund training camps or using his own money and showing him people's houses with groceries. You know, in Canada, you don't have the infrastructure like through the NCAA system that you have in the United States. And, mm-hmm. you know, coaches have to carry a lot of burden on their back. You know, it's changing now a little bit, you know, with the funding that's available in Canada now, but that, that wasn't the case in the 1980s. And yeah, uh, for sure. You know, there's a lot of personal sacrifice on the part of all of those coaches.
0: What, what was the segue for you into sports marketing with Nike? Was that a kind of a, what was the shift purpose here there, an experience or an opportunity or what, why did you go into that?
1: Yeah. Cause, um, well, I kind of recognized that, you know, I'm kind of, I'm pretty, I think I'm fairly observant. Uh, You don't need to be that observant to realize that there's not a lot of coaching jobs in Canada. It's not the United States. Mm -hmm. And um, there is a particular pathway to getting a job in the NCAA. And if you're a foreign coach, that typically involves having a lot of success Mm. um, and coming in as a very experienced coach. Or having gone to school in the United States and then following the pathway that a lot of U.S. athletes do when they transition into coaching was just you know go from volunteer to graduate assistant to a, you know a assistant coach at a at a smaller institution and then maybe get yourself into a power power five type school but um, yeah I just realized that um, and and I. You know, Brian McCalder hired me at BC Athletics, and that was a great experience for almost a year, where I got to run the track and field program there. But I could see what the issues were, and I wanted to coach. And there weren't a lot of coaching jobs, and the ones that did exist typically involved, um, you know, taking your time and splitting it nine ways, and um, you know that you could tell you weren't going to have success under that model. So um, when the Nike opportunity came up. Um, Tim Phelan was the rep in Canada, went on to become the American rep, went on to become sports marketing director in Russia, um, during the Sochi Olympics and then is back in Beaverton now working with John Capriotti. But I mean, he was very supportive. Again, it's just another person who kind of believed in me at that point and, and said, Hey, you can do this. You should transition to this, you know, Markey's, or sorry, Nike's philosophy is, you know, we rather take people that are, um, you know, based on this whole notion of authenticity, we'd rather take people that understand the sport in detail and teach them marketing than to take marketing experts and try and teach them the sport. Hmm. Because The latter doesn't work. It's not effective. And a lot of companies try to do that. Um, Nike's approach was different. Your, your role was to help the marketing team understand sport and how to apply, uh, campaigns in an authentic manner. Hmm. So again, I had awesome team there. I mean, awesome team. I mean, um, You know, one of my co-workers was the assistant general manager of the the Raptors. And I think he might be with the Nets now or something. I think he's moved on to the United States. Um, Another one of my co-workers is still there in that role running basketball. Um, My boss at the time, uh, Ken Allen, who was uh, the head of marketing, sports marketing in Canada at the time, is the director of marketing for Columbia, in Canada columbia uh, sportswear um so really strong team tons of connections they taught me a ton of stuff um you know another guy viddy gomes he ended up being the head of basically nike golf marketing team you know tiger woods he managed tiger woods you know so these guys were you know they were they were plain speaking there was no bullshit i remember once I, i went out um we had the rights, the licensing right to the Offset of Cross Country and Offset of Track and Field Championships. And, you know, it, people don't understand this, but imagine the single biggest, you know, the Texas High School Track and Field Championships. That's, and drop that in Canada. That's Ontario. That's Offset. So <laughs> thousands of kids, you know, um, it, it's a, a badge of honor to make it to the championships, and everybody wanted a t shirt. And went to the first, my first event, we were selling these t shirts at the Cross Country Championships, and I was flabbergasted. I mean, we literally had, a three hour lineup before it opened. And, you know, I think we sold, I think our record was we did six figures. Like we did over a hundred thousand dollars at some events wow. and basically ran this whole project by, by myself with a bunch of, you know, kids that are cashiers at the retail store, um, had a new pair of hiking boots on because the cross country course. It was really muddy, <laughs> you know, work all weekend, hard, drop the truck off near midnight, you know, at, outside the offices, go home, get some sleep back first thing in the morning, unloading the truck by myself, um, had to come up into the office to get something. And it wasn't a public office. It was behind, you know, you know, you couldn't get in there. It was a secure environment. And Viddy saw me with these hiking boots on that were covered in mud. And he just let me have it. He was just like, what are you doing? Are you a moron? You cannot be in this environment with those boots on like that. Like, you know, Go, you know, I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't like we didn't have access to all the shoes in the world that we wanted, right? You know, and so okay, <laughs> point taken. Again, right? I mean, we had. I mean, we had interns that would show up in Adidas footwear and literally say, "Well, I don't have anything else." And this said, "Look, too bad. You're not working here anymore." Like literally, get fired on their first day. Mm. You know, that's just if you can't figure it out at that level, you shouldn't be here. Um, but uh, brilliant people, like you know. Uh, if you want to talk about, you know, a, a company culture, particularly at that time, um, really strong, you know, this whole notion of the, you have a body, you are an athlete mm. and, and then building everything around that. And, uh, it was a fantastic experience, but from my perspective, it was like, I was there to get, you know, become more diversified, mm. right? you know, to get a broader understanding, because I knew that if I wanted to coach in Canada, that I needed to bring skill sets to the table that other coaches didn't have mm. and connections. Um, and you know, fortunately, you know through that opportunity, I was uh, the Canadian Federation at the time was with Adidas, and uh, through Donovan, Donovan's big era there, and Bruni's, and uh, I ended up signing them, brought them over to Nike, and uh, you know established a lot of connections in the organization through that. And Alex Gardner, who was another coach that you know from Winnipeg, great sprint coach, huge supporter of coach development, was a you know big supporter of mine, and and gave me that opportunity to. Um, go to Edmonton because they were starting that the center with a $13 million endowment that was left over from the um, 2001 world championships mm-hmm. from the federal government. So, you know, that, you know, and again, it was just simple. It was like, okay, he knows how to coach and he has some kind of understanding of business and he's ran the sport at a provincial level. Like he's the best candidate,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and it didn't, that's all it took to distinguish myself from all it took I say, but you know, cause being at Nike was a hell of an experience.
0: At the athletics coaching center you you built this like before it was really en vogue. You built sort of an online educational portal and stuff, and you know had had created a lot of a lot of coach education stuff. Tell me a little bit about that journey, and I think you were doing that with Derek a little bit too and Um, where did it go right and where did it go wrong for you or did it so i'm just kind of assuming matrix fitness produces training equipment that focuses on improving the training experience for athletes and coaches alike with equipment that focuses on building speed power and explosive performance in the most efficient manner matrix has partnered with some of the top sporting organizations worldwide as a global brand with local support the matrix performance team assists their customers with solutions research and training protocols so coaches can focus on what they do best, help athletes prepare for competition and get better. Follow them on Facebook and Instagram at Matrix Fitness Canada for the latest updates around the success stories that document what makes Matrix unique as an equipment manufacturer. Uh,
1: Yeah, I mean, that that was an incredible experience. I mean, I I learned a lot from that. Um, You know, um, there were some things that were really done well there. Um, mm. And I have to say, like, that was probably one of the funnest times of my career, you know, mm. that, that four or five years that we were there together. Um, so I, I got the job, you know, was in the Faculty of Physical Education and Recreation of the University of Alberta because the coaching center, in order to, you know, in order to be efficient, all of the operational aspects of the of the center were going to be run through the faculty. And that way we didn't need to have accountants or, you know, pay for, you know, and that was part of the partnership between the foundation and the university. And um, um there had been an intern at Nike, Brian Cropman, who's still at of Alberta now. And this guy was phenomenal. It's like when you come across people who just get it. Mm-hmm. And he ended up having his internship renewed, like, I think three times or something. It was a record. Like, people don't get their internship renewed. And, like, we just didn't want to let this guy go. He's working for free. <laughs> um, but, you know, he was, he was just, you asked him to do something, and he got it done. And, you know, I kind of understand my strengths and weaknesses, and I knew that I had to have someone like that around me, you know, which is like, okay, I understand the sport, I've got ideas, but I need an operational person that, who's young, is early in their career, who I can trust. And so from the second I knew I was taking the role, I was talking to him, you know, and I was calling him from Edmonton, and I'm like, you're going to be my first hire. And he was my first hire. And then we needed someone for content. And the best person for that was Derek Evelyn. I mean, the guy's incredibly well-read. Um, he works really hard, um, was able to put together a fantastic curriculum. And uh, um, so just the three of us, it kind of grew from there. But it was really the three of us that got that place started 2004, mm-hmm. 2005. Um, the, the mandate, of course, like a lot of things, was very broad. And I think, the, in principle, the idea was right. That, you know, I, I fundamentally believe this. This is, you know, we pursued this at UK Athletics, England Athletics. This was a big component of their programming, which is if you're going to invest anywhere in the sport, you know, besides, you know, the the obvious things like you need to have competitions and, you know, um, but you have to support coaches because coaches are the single biggest difference maker in any athlete's career. If every athlete can have the most positive experience through their developmental pathway with a series of coaches who lack ego, who are incredibly knowledgeable, who are transitioning athletes at appropriate points in their career, they're going to be successful. Mm-hmm. And success again is like I said earlier, is them reaching their maximum potential at the peak moment in their career when they're, you know, like whatever, 22, 23, 24 years of age. Um, so I think principally it was correct. There was some tension from the very beginning because out of that $13 million, the, the, the Federation had gone through Athletic Canada had gone through a very difficult period in the late 90s where they had very poor leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily on the coaching standpoint, because Andy McGuinness was there and like he did, you know, he was very influential in my career as well. Um, you know, in terms of being somebody who encouraged coaches and gave coaches opportunities. But um at an accounting level, they got themselves into trouble Mm -hmm. and there was still kind of, they were trying to get themselves out of debt. And I think there was a strong belief from the Federation that that endowment should have been turned over to the Federation. And while they were cooperative um, and, you know, I have a really good relationship with Joanne Mortimer, who I believe is still at on the podium as the chief operating officer. Um, You know, there was among certain people, this underlying current, that you know, the, the funds should have gone to the Federation. So there was always a little bit of conflict there. And then there's inherent conflict anyways, because, you know, we were, I was definitely coming from a Nike position and that was very entrepreneurial. It's like, let's get things moving. Like, you know, You know, these old infrastructures and ways of doing things aren't necessarily the best way. And, you know, we wanted to do some things a little bit differently. and, And obviously, the Federation has responsibilities around formal qualifications, and they have that infrastructure in place, and they want that supported. But for the most part, you know, through my relationship with Alex Gardner, you know, which was always strong, was always positive, he was always encouraging, Joanne was very encouraging as well, um you know, and you know we had some great leadership at the university that they just they just let us run with it and and we very quickly realized hey there's no way with the amount of money we have uh, because thirteen million sounds like a lot, but basically what was happening was we had four hundred thousand dollars a year, that was the interest that was coming off of the was coming off of the off of the endowment and that's what we had to operate off of. And then we had to generate revenue on our own beyond that. If we want to do anything or create partnerships. And we just realized that we've got to go digital. Like Mm. if we don't go digital, there's no way we're going to be able to meet this mandate because we can't be everywhere in person. And our belief was largely that we just need to get good information out there in digestible formats, Mm. whether that's audio written video. Um, You know, we, we went about trying to develop all of them. And, uh, 2007, I think was when we first started putting video online and, uh, we worked with this provider and I remember they'd just come back from this convention in Las Vegas and they were saying, yeah, you guys are going to be the first organization in Canada to have this technology because it's brand new and, um, you're going to be able to stream video from your website and, uh. And that's what we started doing. And there was no social media. We didn't have a clue what we were doing, and there was nothing to read at the time, because nobody <laughs> really had done it before. I mean, I think we pretty much came up around the same time as YouTube. Mm. And um, so what we did was we had free content, but then we also had smaller, digestible bits of content that we would charge, um, you know, 799 to access it three times or something. I remember us being really concerned about how many times they could access the content, uh, you know, because they would just keep it and share it with their friends, et cetera, et cetera. All these things that just like are irrelevant now, you know um, I mean, now most of your content should be free and then you post mm-hmm. your your prime products. Um, but but yeah, it was an incredibly interesting time. And we were fortunate at the same time to have built up this athlete group. And I mean, I literally lucked out. I mean, Todd Christopher was there. He wanted me to coach him. And within eight months, he won, broke the Canadian record, won a bronze medal at the world championships at 21 years of age. And really, he should. he was ranked number two in the world that year from Edmonton. You know, mm-hmm. like it was, you know, the kid was a phenomenal athlete and, I mean, he just has that personality that he's going to be successful in whatever he does. And that really just the combination of those two, two things that we had, the staff, the support we had, and then Tyler's success. And it was just like, okay, you know, take this athlete piece and run with it. And, um, uh, I remember when I moved to Edmonton, there had been an article in the newspaper in 2004 about how, how, uh, unfair the the selection criteria were at the time, because they essentially, I think there'd been one athlete from all of Alberta. There'd been no athletes selected, you know, from Edmonton to the Olympics that year. Tyler had, as a 20 year old, had got the standard like two weeks after the deadline and he couldn't go. Hmm. Um, so that was a big headline on the Edmonton journal. I remember thinking, we're going to, we're going to turn this around. Like, I think we had six athletes from Edmonton, four that were in our training group and two that we supported that ended up going to the 2008 Olympics. Um, and Tyler won the world indoor championships that year adam had already broken the canadian record in the hurdles he smashed it he ran like 48 2 was in the top six in the world in 2007 so we were having a lot of success and it was just a really exciting time you know we were traveling all over the world you know creating all this exciting content you know hearing from people and uh, interesting to talk about northern ireland earlier when i got to the uk someone came up to me at a conference and basically said hey I emailed you guys, and I remember the email because Derek pointed it out to me. Um, You know, me and my buddies, we listen to your podcasts, and then we go to the pub on Sunday morning and have breakfast, and we talk about everything that's in the podcast. And I said, "Yeah, I remember that email. You know, like that was impactful because we I realized at that point that we were starting to get a bit of a global following, and Mm. uh, you know, it's bringing us on to do you know more of the same."
0: That's really, it's so interesting listening to you. Like, I'm curious because I think sometimes in in the world of performance sport, people, and I think this is by nature sometimes a human thing, but people have this kind of I'm going to get this job, and this is going to. There's almost like this finality of I've got to go and get that job, and then then once I get that job, I arrive at that job. And I hear in the the thread of character of the things that you're doing that that that's almost like it's a station and you recognize this is a station I'm going to do it really well, but this is, this is creating me. And I'm I'm just kind of self creating is, is that conscious or unconscious in you when you look back, like you mentioned about at the Nike job and how, you know, you kind of knew you needed this in order to like, like, do you know what I'm kind of asking when I say that?
1: Yeah, I understand that. That would be a flattering interpretation. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Retrospective. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'd love to say, yeah, that's accurate. Um, I mean, I definitely, like I said about the Nike role, like, you know, I was actually on, I was on the staff in 2001, the Canadian staff in 2001 of the world championships when I got the offer. And I remember talking to Alex Gardner and he just said to me, you got to take this role. You'd be crazy if you don't take this role. And um, I was torn because I had, you know, Shane was competing in the 400, you know, he would just <clears throat> run 44, eight you know, he was in contention for a medal at that championships. And, and I basically just had to pick up and go to this hotel and, and start working for Nike and trust, you know, Derek was on staff. So just, you know, trust the staff that, that were there. Um, so remember that part. Um, I think that part of it is I'm just really restless too. Mm -hmm. you know, like I love ideas that can be a downside. And so, part of the reason why Stu and I work so well together is because Stu can really get stuck in. I mean, he's developing this need for speed course right now. He's doing a phenomenal job. I mean, he's basically been a hermit for four to five months. (laughs) That's not my personality. Yeah. Um, I'm a bit of a control freak, but I like ideas. So for me right now, doing the operational aspects of the company, you know, uh, we can talk about this a little bit more later, but that was almost our downfall. We almost went under because we weren't looking after these components properly. So mm-hmm. I see myself as having a very stabilizing role in that. I'm all over the budget. Every morning It's the first thing I do. Mm-hmm. And um, you have to be, you know, because we're trying to build a business in track and field. But but yeah, retrospectively, all those different skill sets have absolutely contributed and gotten me to a position and Stu and Andreas um, you know, and coach path to a place where we're now potentially in a position where we can make this something lucrative in a commercial environment, you know, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't want to have tried this in my thirties,
0: mm-hmm. you
1: know, I just wouldn't have been ready for the challenge because it's, it's not easy. Um, so, you know, from that, from that perspective, yeah, cumulatively all of those experiences have been incredibly valuable. Definitely there was a conscious component to it, but I think if you work hard and, um if if you work hard and diligent and in a focused manner and start to have success, then opportunities will open up for you, you know? And if you're not closed down, if um, you're open to new ideas, you're open to new relationships, you're open to experimenting, people will identify you and see your abilities. And uh, I mean, that's largely how I got the job in the United Kingdom. Like, you know, I had gone to Edmonton. Um, We had a lot of success really early with Tyler Um, You know, we were having success on the coach development front. He ended up winning the World Indoor Championships in 2008. And Athletics Weekly, which is the the large British um, running publication, did an article on me because, hey, these guys are doing some interesting stuff. This guy, they're building a a sprint program in an incredibly cold environment. And they've got some really good coach development materials. And I had Hunter from a large firm in London that had been, you know, contracted to look for somebody – for my role, um, saw the article and called me up and we were in a training camp April of 2008 and said, Hey, how would you, what would you think about, you know, working for British athletics and being, you know, number two person on the, on the sports side, um, heading into a home Olympics. And, you know, that's very intriguing, you know, <laughs> and, but it was also very conflictual because, we were doing such a good job at Edmonton and we were starting to become very influential at the athletics Canada level. And we'd established some really good relationships and people had placed a lot of trust in us. And I really struggled with that decision. It took me three months to make that decision. Mm. And ultimately I chose to go, which I probably could have predicted from the beginning, just given my personality, because I'm always up for a challenge and something new. Um, But, you know, it had implications. It was hurtful. You know, it was hurtful to the program in Edmonton. To a degree, it was hurtful to the national program because of the role that the more, you know, senior role that we were starting to play in influencing the sport. Um, but from my perspective, I was kind of like, Well, I can spend 20 years doing this in Canada, or I can go and do all the same things in a four year time span in the United Kingdom mm-hmm. um, just because of the budgets, right? You know, I had seven and a half million dollar coaching at coach education budget a year $30 million over four years. I had a massive support staff. We had, I was directly line managed, 22 people. Richard Weeder was the head of England athletics, had probably another 20, 25 people. We probably had 75 people across all the home countries dedicated to coach development. And, and to, to this day, I think that has been the single biggest investment in coach development in the history of a single sport ever. You know, I can't think that, anyone spent more than $30 million in coach development from one sport ever. Uh, And we had a big impact and we had runway because I, you know, just finished with Derek and Derek came over to the United Kingdom. We just finished doing a lot of what we were going to do in the United Kingdom in Edmonton. Now we were given more money and told run with it, you know, Hmm. and they had a hundred percent trust in us. So this, I, I think that if you, if you do really good work and you're focused and you're, open to exploring relationships that these opportunities come about so it is hard like you know it's not you know you and i are still that generation where potentially our fathers probably worked in one or two roles their entire life mm-hmm. and that's you know we were in kind of that transition period and now that's clearly not what's happening right you know yeah, people yeah. move every two to three years
0: now um that's so. awesome before we go in i want to go into a little bit of the uk piece and then swing back and sort of It always fascinates me how fast an hour zips by. But anyways, you are born September 26th, correct? That's correct. So you are a Libra 8. Your purpose is to strive for spiritual and worldly balance through your actions, thoughts, and deeds. Unafraid to oppose injustice, eager to embrace the truth, and always providing a haven for those who have lost their voice and their way. I never thought of stopping, and I just hated sleeping. I can't imagine having a better life. Barbara McClintock, 1983 Nobel laureate. The Libra 8 can be obsessive, particularly when it comes to work. They may tend to analyze everyone and everything a bit too much. They've got a great eye for detail and know how to package and sell anything. Depression may be a problem because they can't always get off the spot and see the bigger picture. When they can, nothing is impossible. Their world will remain small unless they learn how to trust. Relationships can be a problem unless they stop testing them again and again. The Libra 8 needs faith. They are talented, have concentration and take responsibility, those are winning qualities. There you go, sir.
1: Pretty <laughs> accurate. There's a broad range of information there, so, you know, it could apply to a lot of people. <clears throat> um, yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, one thing I think it's important to talk about, and I've tried to talk about it a little bit more, but um, we're going to talk about UK Athletics, but coming out of the back of UK Athletics, you know, I, I went through two to three years of hell with my health, you yeah. know, like um, chronic fatigue, um, largely because going into the Olympics, we were working, I know there were weeks where I know, cause we recorded it. It was, you know, we had to, because of our role, um, health and welfare in the United Kingdom, like, like 105 hours, you know, and it, it wasn't 105 hours of standing on the track, which is often energizing it was 105 hours of office work and operational and, uh, man, I job, you know, the, the job assessments. And I think I fired, you know, 45 people and me and the guy in HR were best friends. And, you know, it was, those are tough emotional, you know, decisions. And, uh, um, yeah, I just crashed coming out of that. And it, it's really important that, I mean, it's easy to say, you know, Stu would argue that there's no such thing as balance Mm-hmm. Um, maybe balance isn't the right word, but, um, I think that you, it's important to understand that what, what do you draw energy from and what detracts from your energy mm-hmm. and ensuring that you're not getting too much of one or the other, mm-hmm. uh, because long chronic exposure to things that detract energy from you are, uh, are, are gonna play hell with your health. Mm-hmm. Now I would look back on that much like in some ways, in a funny way, like COVID, which is like a lot of good things can come from that. And in terms of lifestyle, diet, physical activity, you know, meditation, I'm on basically a seven-year meditation streak now, like talk about obsessive, I have a timer and, you know, it's not in the spirit of meditation, but I can tell you exactly how many days I've meditated in the last seven years. So, you know, it's important for me. Um, So, um, you know, I think for young coaches it's important to ensure that, it's not so much a balance but just ensuring that that what that you have the right kind of equation when it comes to energy detractors and energy attractors, you know, and, and what role they're playing in your life.
0: Well, you know, that takes me into that UK experience. So, you know, you go over in this zenith period where the UK is just gonna drop a serious amount of cake on trying to win medals at their own olympics um and you kind of create and are part of this uh, confluence of um professional staff and guys you've known guys you've respected and we talked about dan before and stuff what's what's inspiring about that experience and what's super challenging about that experience and finally what what uh, you you kind of mentioned it but what what is the sort of side effect of uh, that maybe you didn't even see coming when when you did it
1: Uh, we could talk about this forever um like i said a lot of experience depressed in a very short period of time Mm -hmm. Uh, on the back of that i started coaching the last two years because you know started to find some room um i was the head coach of the british junior team for three years um so was involved in that aspect of it as well but um i mean the first thing is is that like it's in it's incredible when you get a team of like-minded people that are intelligent, that are bright, that are hardworking, that just see opportunity. You know, that have growth mindsets and what they can do. I mean, I mean, we did some really fantastic things there. You know, and I try to be modest about it, but it, I mean, we had there are coaches like Dina Asher Smith and uh, whose coaches I know were John Blackie were um, incredibly affected by that program, and it was. And you know, important part of their, their developmental experience and proud to be able in a small way contributed to that. I have some great friendships and Richard Weeder is the performance director at Loughborough university. Now, uh, Tom Crick who worked with me was the performance director in Northern Ireland after that, and is now the head coach at Aspire in Qatar, uh, which is a huge role, you know, like the, the Qataris are, they spend a lot of money on, um, uh, on uh, mm-hmm. athlete development and, and that academy. And he's running the whole program now. Um, so Charles Van you know, awesome leader, you know, very strong personality. Uh, I learned a lot from him. And so just some really good people. And, you know, I think with like, when you have a group like that and you have resources, the sky's the limit. Um, I think what I learned from it as well is that, don't be afraid to stand up for what you believe in. Like, we pushed back really hard against UK sport. UK sport at that time had a formula that was very much based on British cycling, which was you need to do talent identification, you need to do talent development, you need to do centralization, um, you need to be heavily invested in sports science, sports medicine, research. I don't, none of us would disagree with that, but how, where your emphasis is and what your priorities are, are important. And, you know, my line would always be, you know, is, speaking with the talent development person at UK sports, like, okay, you tell me how I'm going to go find the next Usain Bolt. Like what criteria am I going to use at 15 or 16 years of age that tells me this person is going to be Usain Bolt. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not to be unfair to cycling, but it is, you know, a small sport, it responds well to centralization because of the need for facilities and it's highly equipment dependent. If you're on million pound prototypes, you're, you've just knocked out 90% of the competition because there's only six or eight countries in the world that can compete with you. And so you've already narrowed the field. That's not the case in athletics and Mm. these very formulaic, um, you know, prescriptions that say you need to do this, 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 and this to have success just doesn't work. Mm. And our belief always was that if you put If you have the best coaches out there, you will be successful in this sport. Like why take on all of the operational aspects of managing young athletes when great young coaches are doing this every day, naturally organically in their own environments. And they're learning as a process and they're given opportunities and they're treated with respect. And they, they basically help these athletes move up through the pathway and they transition them if necessary. It's not always necessary if necessary to another group of professional coaches. And so we, you know, Simon Nathan, who's a performance director at Athletes Canada. Now he was on our team. He was the head of uh, performance operations. Like we were unified in our perspective around this and, and we pushed hard to have the model that we had. We had some success. Um, the thing that I really, you know, and some would argue that we didn't do as well as with six medals, we could have done better um, The thing that I take away from it though, is that four years, like much like your hours on your podcast, four years is not enough time that we were really starting to realize things in in the third and the fourth year that you could see there were real changes. Just, we tracked all the data statistically. We had really awesome databases there around youth development and you could see everything was trending strongly in the right direction. And, um, We needed another four years for sure. That was an eight-year program. And, again, I benefited from these legacy funds. Um, What drove coach development at that time was actually that Great Britain had lost the 2005 World Championships. They ended up going to Helsinki because I believe there was a change in government, and I could be wrong about that. But, basically, the commitment that was initially there to build a stadium in London – dissipated and the stadium wasn't happening so they lost the championships and so about 35 million pounds came back to the federation as kind of a consolation prize and that money was put into both coach development and competition development um i you know if i knew what i know now i would have basically tried to temper some of our spend and created an eight-year plan Mm -hmm. but it's one thing to say that especially when you have a home Olympics at four years or three and a half years, it's another thing to operationalize it because everything is pointed towards that four-year cycle and everything in sport runs on these four-year cycles, which are (laughs) detrimental because you see changeovers in staff, you see, and everyone says, okay, here's the big prize, 2012 Olympics. Let's see what we can do. It's only a moment in time You know, and this is a continual process and success requires consistent long-term investment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like if you're an experienced coach, you know, don't believe the hype, you know, all these magic programs and, you know, magicians are going to come over and help you. It doesn't work like that. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, if you ask me what we did wrong, you know, and I'll be brutally honest, I think from a cultural perspective, we could have done things better. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine have been a veteran track and field coach in the United Kingdom, veteran athletics coach with, you know, championship level athletes, being awarded a home Olympics and being told that the whole senior leadership team is going to be foreigners because you're not good enough. Hmm. Like that's just not a great place to start, you know, and that's going to take a lot of work on the part of the team, you know, to, to support that staff. And, um, you know, I, 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 it's just, you know how high-performance sport is. Sometimes you're just not given the room to develop those relationships in a way um, that's the best for everybody, and especially the best for everybody long-term. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I do take away from it, and we, I try to, you know, remember it here with what we're doing at Altus, is that, you know, I, I remember very early I did this presentation in front of the coaches, and uh, I, it was a simple bar graph. And, uh, you know, I basically, you know, they, it was just for uh, – as an example, let's just say that there's 10 buckets. That if you're gonna be the best coach ever in the world, you would have skill sets in each of these 10 buckets. And you know, I said to the coaches, now the reality is that none of us, not even Coach Path, has all of those 10 buckets covered off on, right? But what we're trying to do through our career is bring up our knowledge and our skill sets in each of those buckets. And you know, much like athletes, you're some coaches, you're gonna have strengths. There's gonna be things you're gonna be really good at. And there's coaches in here that had a ton of success with knowledge in three or four of those buckets. And that's okay. You know, Mm -hmm. like that's, that's often what high performance looks like. And, you know, for coach A, the buckets might look different from coach B, but they've had the same level of success. Well, if you try to bring in a uniform program now, particularly in an Olympic cycle, and you say to these coaches, Hey, guess what? All those buckets that you know, those are the wrong buckets. We're going to teach you this. And, or you, even you don't do it so overtly, but you, you keep emphasizing, Hey, coach path is the model. You know, this is what you should be striving to be. And you have people that aren't coach Path. You're now creating doubt in their mind where the three things that they're really good at. They're not so sure about anymore. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to do this stuff that they're not very good at which you would never do with an athlete, which is train their weaknesses and stay away from their strengths. And they start to doubt themselves and their results. You can see it in their results. Mm. And there were a couple of coaches that were just fantastic who, you know, from like some of the best coaches in the world from a results perspective, Great Britain's had a ton of success. And, you know, they were put mildly in a state of confusion (laughs) by the third year, you know, and that was all our doing, you know, mm-hmm. we have to take ownership of that. Now, if we'd had eight, 12 years to run that cycle, you know, I think some of that understanding and compassion would have come back into the sport, would have come back around because, mm-hmm. you know, um, it, based on what i started with, was like when you have a great team of people that are like-minded, that are pointed in the same direction, anything is achievable from any environment. And we, we did that in coach development not sure we were as effective on the performance side with that culture.
0: I think that's a perfect segue to sort of bring this together because um, I want to honor your time as well. But I also want to make sure that we talk about Altus because like what I recognize and what you just talked about is the fact that you seem to have recognized what the different buckets are and recognized that not everybody has them and tried to bring together a series of different people through both the engagement of the professionals, but also the internship expect or opportunities, things like that, to fill the buckets in different ways and rec- and recognize those th- different value propositions of them. And you spoke about your the difference between yourself and Stu in that in that effect, and and probably Dan as well. Um, one of the things I've admired about the organization is just your expressed desire to share, which I think comes from the center of your. You're, um, you know, call it the spiritual leader in Dan, but this idea that, you know, you guys want to share what you know and at the same time grow as, a, as an organization through that sharing process. So maybe talk about that a little bit and what you guys are really trying to achieve.
1: Yeah, as I, you know, as I said earlier, uh, all of the mentors that I've had were jointly vested in both athlete development and coach development, and they understood both a responsibility to bring their best to the athletes, but to help develop the sport by develop, helping develop other coaches and even probably selfishly understood that by helping develop other coaches, they were developing themselves through that process, right? Because you're forced mm-hmm. to think about things. Um, I mean, there's some incredibly bright young coaches out there right now that, you know, with the resources that are available online that can skill up really quickly, you know, and they, and, they can challenge some of your concepts and your ideas. And so I think that's a healthy process for any coach. If you're going to be coaching, you need to be willing to continue to grow throughout your career. And um, it's easier said than done for sure. Um, So we've tried to honor that, you know, that perspective, like, you know, boost next Nader or coach path or Gary Winkler, all of these, um, Victor Lopez, all of these coaches that were instrumental in North American Thinking track and field. John Smith has always given a lot of his time to coach development. Um, it, it it's important, and so we've we've tried to basically build the company around those two principles, which is athlete and coach development. And if you're going to do coach development. Um, We don't believe in secrets. You know, we don't believe there's any secrets. We, there isn't any secrets because every athlete's different. And so Mm -hmm. your secret that works on one athlete or works with one athlete at one particular moment of time in their career is not going to work across the board. And we need to be, you know, have a cooperative environment where we're able to share ideas and solve these puzzles together. And that's what we've tried to do. Technology has definitely made that a lot easier. We've had some experience with technology in a couple different environments. And so, you know, we've tried to bring these principles of sharing and transparency um, to the coach development field. And I hope in a small way that, that we're contributing to a more open and honest coaching community. I mean, far too often you see coaches at each other's throats, but the only reason that happens is because they're literally pitted against each other, right? Where there's, you throw a few scraps out on the floor and say, Hey, go fight over it. You know, you know what kind of behavior you're going to get. And so I always felt like when I was working at the Federation, it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's our responsibility to ensure that you're respected and that you have all the resources you need to become one of the best coaches in the world, whether you can choose to engage in those at any particular point in your career is on you. But there shouldn't be any barriers because that's a kind of a minimal standard, which is to provide you with the resources you need to become a fantastic coach. And so we've tried to do that here as well. Now we're just trying to do it in a little bit like a, a commercial environment. And so it, it's, it's difficult at times, right? I mean, we start essentially at zero. you know. And I, I, I've said this through the ACPs. I mean, this isn't not even the case. Three years ago when we took the company over, there was 750000 $800,000 of debt. And We had to reorganize. We were reorganized the company. We reorganized the debt, and you know I'm proud to say, like I think in two months' time, we we've, we've paid off our portion, which was about five hundred thousand dollars of the debt. Um, and so, not only were we not starting at zero, we were starting in the hole. Hmm. We were trying to sell a product uh, and provide a coaching service um, with with limited resources because we really have to watch our budget lines. Um, But I think philosophically the principles resonate with people and they appreciate it. And like, I'm flabbergasted. I'm blown away at, you know, the, the following that we've, we've, you know, the community that community is a better word that we've been able to kind of facilitate. I mean, Mm. We had the entire Boston Red Sox strength and conditioning staff at an AC, our formal ACP, like literally four months after they won the World Series. I mean, I'm looking at that, like these guys just won the World Series and they're coming out to visit us. You know, we should be (laughs) visiting them. And, you know, it's been, you know, across all the sports, you know, baseball, virtually every baseball team west of the Rockies has is has visited us or has some relationship with us, you know, NHL, NBA, NFL, college football, college track and field, obviously internationally, we have a large international following. Anytime we put an in-person program, I'm blown away how many people travel from Australia, India, United Kingdom, you know, uh, Northern Ireland, Scotland, you know, uh, Canada, obviously, um, you know, it's interesting. I track all of our digital sales, and I think you know, just since COVID started, we've sold products in over seventy-five countries. So, you know, we're starting to, you know, as far we've as far as English will go, we're pretty much probably at the at the boundaries of the English language there. Mm. Um, so, it's been incredibly exciting. It's been incredibly challenging. You know, I think we're at a point now where. Um, we're about to do some really good things, but ultimately, and Steve and I were just talking about this last week, what we're trying to do is we are, I mean, this seems like a very audacious goal now. We are trying to change the sport. You know, this sport is highly contingent upon single or two sources of funding, either through a federation or a footwear company. And it's, while the original intentions might've been good, um, and I was in that industry Um, I think it's led to some very negative consequences as well. And we've tried to remain independent. We're not affiliated with any footwear company, with any single federation. We're trying to create revenue streams that will create opportunities for us to change how sports delivered. And when you sit here in the United States and, you know, I mean, I had a kid in 2018, Paul Dettler, who's still here with me, was number three in the world. He won the world cup. He was second at the U S championships. He ran sub 45, nine times. 44-43, won two gold medals at the World Cup and uh, was ranked Diamond League final, you know, ranked number three by track field news the end of the year. He did not get a footwear contract. Hmm. Not one company wanted to sign him Hmm. because he was 26, 27 years of age. And But if you'd done a little investigation into his career, you would have seen that he started late. And, um, you know, he'd had a lot of injuries because of the type of programming. So, you know, that's, we're trying to work for those types of athletes. So like we want to create opportunities for those athletes. And in our ideal world, I mean, we're doing $10 million a year in revenue and we're pumping a big chunk of that back into athlete scholarships and, and literally funding athletes to be here. Um, mm-hmm. But there's tension, right? There's tension in the business development and on the athlete development side, and we're trying to walk both of them up simultaneously. But, you know, sometimes, you know, like you know, the athlete performances will suffer and you shift to the athletes and then, you know, it's this tension with business development. And so I think, I think probably we'll get to a phase where, you know, Stu and I we're in our fifties, you know, we're not necessarily coaching on a day-to-day basis. We're providing opportunities for young coaches to practice their skill sets and we're driving the business. And, uh, you know, we're helping with a lot of the operational stuff and we're creating opportunities for other coaches, much like coach path has done, um, and for athletes in the future. And, you know, we had a great run from 2015 to 2018, 2019, we had a ton of success and obviously this year has been a huge challenge, uh, particularly in Arizona. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, we're resilient. We're, we we've, we've done fairly well. I'm, I'm incredibly grateful that we got this di- really went large on digital three years ago, because when people started looking for resources, we were already here and we were well-established, I would not want to be trying to get into the digital field right now with this level of competition. There's so many voices out there. Yeah.
0: Well, you guys are a solid voice, and uh, you know, um, just to, as I wrap this up, to let the listener know that you guys are doing another one of your virtual ACPs in September. I'm honored to actually help out with the poolside chats a little bit. So I think it should be an amazing event, and people can go to your site and get uh, registered for that. I assume uh, yeah. is it available to register for now, Kev? Or is it? Static? I went
1: live today. Oh, awesome! The landing page is up. Awesome. Social media will be going out on that today, September 14th. Fantastic lineup of speakers. Again, we've really tried to, we try to keep things affordable. You know, we want, we want to bring a lot of value to coaches. We know what the challenges are out there right now. There's a lot of coaches out there without employment. Um, so we want to bring really quality resource to them at an affordable rate all in one spot. Um, and then, you know, uh, I'd be amiss if I didn't mention that, you know, need for speed course is going to be launching in about 10 or 11 days. And that's going to be an awesome resource. I mean, I think that's probably going to be one of the resources on speed development for team sport, you know, and, uh, um, guys have done a fantastic job with it. Um, it's really exciting to be seeing some of that quality come out. So, and we've had a lot of interest in it. Um, so, you know, hopefully cool. people will find value from that and, uh, will engage in the product
0: well if it's anything like the other stuff you guys have done uh, it's, uh, I'm sure it'll be fantastic so you, this podcast will be out next week for those of you listening this was recorded on August 18th and it'll be out next week so all these things are available to you and Kevin thanks for taking the time today it was uh, a privilege to listen to I knew this would be a, an interesting yarn that we would go through for a while but uh, it's been great to chat with you and get to know you a little bit better and I wish you the best with uh, what you guys are doing at Altus
1: yeah, thanks, Scotty. We appreciate it. You're a strong voice out there for coaches. And uh, you know, the more people we have like you, the better off better off we are as a profession. Um, you know, I think you you know, you've demonstrated a lot of the qualities and why we resonate with you. You know, a lot of your qualities are the same as ours. Yeah. And uh I appreciate that, especially being a good Canadian as well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> have a good day, sir. I appreciate your time.
1: All right, thanks, Scotty. Take care.
0: Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at KingOpain and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de saint Rome.